If you've been a Christian for long at all, one of the things that you are taught uh, about what you should do at the beginning of every year is probably figure out how you want to do a Bible reading plan. It's really cool these days. We all have Bibles that are very accessible. We have them on our phones and other things. We have you know, programs and apps that help us read through the Bible. And so uh, it's very common for people to begin January 1st and they start reading through the Bible. Usually you start with a lot of gusto and then a couple of uh, weeks into it, you get into some of the drier sections of the Bible, uh, especially when it comes to those sections where, you know, the, the Old Testament law is enumerated and you're learning all sorts of things about how uh, they used to, used to legislate, you know, how somebody should act toward their animals or whatever. And you come into these sections which are basically genealogies. They're, you know, uh, so-and-so is the son of the, the so-and-so and the son of the son of, or, or in the old versions, you know, he begat, he begat, he begat, he begat. <laughs> And, and you just, your, your mind wanders and you think to yourself when you're in those genealogies, what in the world is this valuable for? I mean, I, I, I get it. You know, you want to make a record of this somewhere so that you can show that there's a historic lineage between people. But like, how is this, how is this ultimately valuable? There's a verse in, in the New Testament in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It's a very famous verse about um, the value of scripture. And it says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Which means, of course, that every part of the Bible is valuable and, in, in the language here, useful for teaching, correcting, training. But i got to be honest, when I go to one of these genealogies, I'm really wondering, like, how is this useful for training in righteousness? So... That's actually what I want to show you today. We are in a section in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38, and it is a genealogy. There are so many names. Uh, some of the names will be familiar, and other ones you will be like, whoa, they actually named a guy Salmon? What I want to show you in this section, though, is um, how this passage is useful for training in righteousness. I want, to I want to show you several things that we can learn from this passage about what it means to follow Jesus, what the ministry of Jesus was all about, that kind of thing. So I have three of them. Number one, we're going to learn that you can trust the Bible. Second, that quiet faithfulness pays off. And third, Jesus is for everyone. So the first of those is, is trust the Bible. I'm going to read the entirety of this passage. So just, just buckle up. It's like 15, 16 verses of names. I will hopefully make a comment here and there throughout to just kind of bring you back onto the, onto the main road as you've gotten off into your slumber. Here we go. Uh, verse 23 of Luke chapter 3. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Ah, he adds that so it was thought because he's, this is Luke giving a nod to the fact that there was a virgin birth here. So it was considered by everybody around that he was the son of Joseph. But we know, of course, that he's the son of the Holy Spirit because of what happened with, with Mary earlier in the book. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, 
the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Negai. I'm really proud of myself up to this point because I have done all of those names relatively well, but they get harder. So bear with me. The son of Math, the son of Mattath, wait a minute, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semin, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, actually in, in um, Hebrew, the, 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 the J is a, is a Y. So this might very be, well be able, you know, historically be understood as Yoda, the son of Yoda. He's in the Mandalorian. He's a little guy. The son of Joannan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elman, Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim. These are great names for you to choose uh, from your, for your babies, by the way. Like if you ever go into a baby list, you know, you get those books and you want to look through them and you're like, oh, which baby do I want, name do I want it? You just need to go to this list because you get some really, really great ones. Um, I have no idea where I was. The son of Melia, I think, verse 31. The, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon. There he is. Salmon, it's a good name, ladies. You can pick that for your firstborn son. The son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, another good name. The son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor. The son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad. That's a good one. Arphaxad the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Um, okay. What you need to see about this is if you were going to take that list, and you are going to compare it with the only other list of names in the Gospels that gives the, the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, you would see some differences. Um, one of the big differences is that they diverge at several places. E even, even the name of Joseph, right? You know, Mary's husband. His father in this version in Luke is different than the version in Matthew. So when people, skeptics in fact, have actually placed the, the list of names in Luke and placed it next to the list of names in Matthew, they've said they don't match. If you did my genealogy, you would probably be able, if I did it at one point and then somebody else did it at another point, they would probably match. Why don't they match here? In fact, the fact that they don't match is evidence in the minds of some skeptics that the Bible is just not trustworthy. These guys are basically making it up. And this is evidence of that, the fact that these don't match and therefore the Bible is contradicting itself at, at some level. And so this is one of those Bible difficulties that I want to try to address with you really quickly. Um, 
What explanation is there for the difference between Matthew and his genealogy and Luke and his genealogy? Well, there's three suggestions that people put forward, reasonable suggestions. One of the easiest is that Luke is basically just talking about Mary's ancestry. And Matthew is talking about Joseph's ancestry. So, you know, you have two ancestries, between a mother and a father, and that might very well be the, the way it works here. Uh, likely not, because uh, this, this ancestry in Luke is often attributed, say, they say, well, it's Mary's. Eh, it seems to be focused on Joseph. So one of the other options, the second option that some people bring up is, well, Matthew's ancestry, his genealogy is a royal ancestry that traces Jesus' line through the Davidic kings. But Luke's is what we call the actual genealogy that traces its line as it actually, actually is. So we, like if I were going to go back into your history, you might have a list of people who were important, who were your, your forebears, right? You might be related to some important prime minister of Canada at one point, or you might be eventually, you know, tie, your line might go back through Napoleon, the great French leader. You would probably highlight those important people along the way and say, look, these are the people who are the rulers, the important folks, and you would skip some generations here and there just to highlight the important folks. Well, the argument here is that Matthew, who's really concerned to make sure that Jesus is seen as in the Davidic kingly line, he's highlighting those who are in the kingly line. You know, he's, he's picking out different characters saying, look, this person, this person, this person, this, all kings, right? And some of those kings are the same ones that Luke will point out in certain places, but Luke is including lots of the nobodies along the way, lots of the people that you might not know about. And that probably explains why it is that we have so many names in this, in this passage that we just don't recognize. It's not used anywhere else, anywhere else in Scripture. And that's, that's really a possibility. The third option is that, uh, for lack of a better phrase, Joseph had two fathers. Here, here's the way that worked. Uh, the Old Testament had a law, and the law was that if the husband of a wife died, the brother of that husband had a legal responsibility to marry the widow and to raise her children as his own. So it was very common for a, a, a son to be born from that first marriage and then the father to die and then the brother come in and marry the wife per the law and then they have a child. And so the two boys are brothers, but different fathers. And so you can see how the lines would diverge in that kind of situation. My big point is, regardless of which one of those is true or not, my big point here is that there are reasonable responses to the critique that this is proof that the Bible contradicts itself. That if you look beyond the surface and you give the Bible the benefit of the doubt and you try to look, look for uh, ways that this could be explainable according to the culture of that day, you will find those kinds of answers. And this is the way it works in all sorts of places in the scriptures when it comes to Bible difficulties. If you give the Bible the benefit of the doubt and you do a little bit of research, one of the things you'll find is that the Bible stands up to the scrutiny almost at every point. 
Um, there are some ways or truths that I think that you can carry with you as kind of um, armor in your mind to protect you against the kinds of uh, devastating doubts that come from, from this, th th these objections. So here are some phrases that I want you to remember about uh, why the Bible can be trusted even when it looks like there are some supposed contradictions or difficulties. So, so I've got three of these little phrases. One, you need to remember that partial reports are not false reports. So if I tell the, a part of the story and not the whole part of the story, that doesn't mean that I'm lying to you. In fact, I could tell a story two different ways at two different times and include different characters, and I still would be telling the truth on both different occasions. I just would be focusing on one in one case and focusing on another in another case. So in the Bible, what you get is, uh, you know, the angels at the tomb. There's different numbers of angels at the tomb if you compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, people say, oh, see, they're making it up. Proof that there's a contradiction. Well, you know, it is very possible that Luke highlights one angel and Matthew might point out that there's two, but both are true. There were two angels there, but Luke is just focusing on the one and he doesn't mention the other. That's very positive. Listen, if, 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 uh, if I were recounting uh, my morning, I might uh, think about the different people that I've spent time with or in the same room. There might be uh, Joe and Stacy and Jim all in the same room. And then you ask me later, what'd you do this morning? And I said, well, I spent some time with Joe. And then someone else came up to me later in the afternoon and they said, oh, what did you do this morning? And I said, well, I spent some time with Joe and with Stacy. And then later on in the evening, I could say Joe and Stacy and Jim and all three of those people who asked me might talk to each other later and say, oh, he was lying. He didn't tell me it was Stacy and Jim. Well, I didn't need to. It's not untrue is my point. I'm not lying just because I'm giving a partial report to one of you. Partial reports are not false reports. Here's another one, a little, little saying that will help you as you deal with these Bible difficulties. Um, summarized reports are not false reports. So when you look in the Bible and you find, uh, you know, numbers, somebody, somebody, not the book of numbers, but the actual, somebody summarizes how many people were in the, in the battle. Oh, it's 50,000 or 64,000 or, or whatever it is. If there were 64,362 or even 69,000, that report is not necessarily untrue. It's a summarized report. We do this all the time. We summarize stuff. How many people were there at the, at the game the other day? I don't know, like 4,000? Liar! There were 4,367. You weren't there. Well, of course we wouldn't do that. If you were in a court of law and they asked you, hey, how many people... Uh, how many people were at the scene of the crime? And you said, well, I don't know, it was like 30, but there were actually 22. They wouldn't say, ah, oh, you're a liar, you perjured yourself. Of course they wouldn't, it's, just, it's, it's summarized numbers. It's the same thing that happens, for example, when Jesus, some of the speeches that he gives in one gospel are not exactly matched in the other gospel, and that's because it's reported speech. And you and I never report speech from our friends absolutely verbatim. He said, and then we look at our phone because we wrote it down at the time, I quote, blah, 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 blah. No, we never do that. We, we will summarize what it is that they say. And somebody else who was listening to the same speech 
that our friend gave, we, he would summarize it differently. But that doesn't mean that both of them were a lie. We would both focus on different aspects based upon what we were interested in or the point we were trying to make. Summarized reports are not false reports. And third, and maybe the most important one, uh, don't judge ancient cultures with modern assumptions. Don't, don't judge ancient cultures or any culture with your particular cultural assumptions. So there's a story in the Old Testament where this guy is uh, walking next to the ark of God that's being brought back from uh, the Philistines back to Israel. They put the ark basically on the back of a cart being pulled by some animals. And the cart kind of starts to tip and the ark starts to slide out and this guy grabs it and, and, and he dies as a judgment from God. And people read this and go, oh, that's awful. That's, that's right, the, the Bible's ridiculous, has stupid stories about people dying because they touch the ark. And why would God, if there is a God, judge a guy for just touching the ark? He's trying to keep the thing on the back of the cart. He's trying to help. But if you go into the details of that story, one of the things you learn is that there actually was a way that you were supposed to carry the ark. They had these two big poles that you had, you know, one guy on each end. So four guys carrying the, the ark that particular way, so nobody has to touch it, and that it's safe. Putting it on the back of a, of a cart was a way of saying, ah, we don't really care about this ark, it's not that important. It would be essentially like putting the queen in, in, on the back, you know, get t you pick the queen up and you say, hey, why don't you get in the back of my pickup? Uh, there's no room, my, you know, my passenger seat's a little dirty, just hop back there, honey. Like it would, it, it would be similar to that because the ark was a representation of God and his holiness on earth. So there's a reason, a cultural reason, a legal reason why God was upset with the way they were treat, treating the ark and why he judged them for their lack of regard for him and for his ark. But in order to know that, you have to do a little research. You have to get out of your own contemporary mindset behind your own contemporary lenses, and you've got to jump yourself into the text, into the world of the passage itself. We, we tend to view other eras and cultures as weird or wrong, but, but in reality, it's just a fact that we don't understand because we don't know what the rules were, were there. Um, this happens even now. Like if you cross cultures and things, one of the things that you, you, you very quickly realize is that, oh, I make assumptions from my cultural point of view all the time, and I think that other cultures are weird or wrong because they do something differently. But then when I live in that culture for a while, I'm like, oh, I, that's why they do it. I was at a train station in Europe at one point, and I was getting some tickets, and right next to me was this lovely little Asian woman. She came up right next to me, right here. I was at the window, and she came up right next to me. And I looked at her, and I cast her in English, can I help you? And she just smiled at me and looked at the, looked at the teller and smiled at me and looked at the teller. She was waiting, but she was like right next to me. So I told my friend at the time, what in the world was that lady doing? He goes, oh, well, she, she was in line. <laughs> she was not in line. She was trying to read over my shoulder what the ticket said. It was so weird, I said. Yeah, but the more you live in Southeast Asia or you spend some time with folks there, their, their personal space is smaller. And there's a reason for that. There's a lot of people living in Tokyo, for example. And if you had big personal space, you, you probably wouldn't be able to live very successfully there. So you get used to smaller personal spaces, and, that, and that's why. That's one of the things when I've come to Canada, I've, I've 
struggled a lot with the fact that so many Canadians love to back their cars into parking spot. I think I've mentioned this before. I think it's ridiculous and crazy. You drive up behind somebody at Costco and then they start, you think they're taking a left, but they're actually taking a left so that they can back in. So you start to pull around them and they're mad at you because I'm backing in here. Like, why are you backing in? Why? You gotta back, at one point you either have to back in now or you gotta back in later. What, why? But when you realize that ICBC holds you accountable if you, if you are pulling out of a spot and you get in an accident, it's your fault, you understand why people would want to be a little bit safer when they pull out of their spot. Or in a place where it's really cold and you wanted access to your battery because you came from Saskatoon where the sun doesn't shine for a long time in the winter. I know it does, but it's really cold and you might need to jump your battery. You understand. So my, my big point here is that give, give the Bible a break. Give it a chance. Many of us have doubts in our minds about what the scriptures have to say and what's, what's true and how, whether, or not they, you know, whether, whether or not the Bible is consistent and what it reports. Before you accuse it of, of wrongdoing, before you accuse it of being stupid or weird, perhaps you should doubt your doubt by doing a little research first. I think you'll find in the end that the Bible is remarkably trustworthy. So that's the first point. Second, quiet faithfulness pays off. Quiet faithfulness pays off. Um, I'm not going to read the whole passage again. I'm not going to put you through that again. But I do want to point out in verses 26 and 27 a representative sample of the passage itself. The son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semyon, the son of Joseph, the son of, there's Yoda again, the son of Joannan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri. Now, I imagine if I put those names on a whiteboard and I, and I asked you, all right, I want you to tell me which ones, which ones of these names sound familiar to you, meaning that like, if you read through the whole Bible, you know that this one would be in it, this one would be in it, this one would be in it, this one would be in it. You might pick, I don't know, Zerubbabel, Shealtiel, I think, is, in, is another place in the Old Testament. But you would be like Yoda, uh, and I've seen movies, but I don't know where in the Bible that, that is. And that's because this, this, this passage is filled with names that, we, that are basically obscure, this is the only place they're mentioned. In, in, in many cases, scholars don't have a clue who, who these people are. These folks lived in obscurity and they faded out of sight. And yet, even though they lived in obscurity, they, their faithfulness was in the Messiah's line. They lived their lives in normal circumstances in the world they lived in, did nothing really great that we know of but they raised their sons to know God and they then became the faithful members of the family of Jesus. That's an important thing to notice. Um, my, my mom is buried in Linden, Washington. I've not been able to go and visit her grave, obviously, because the border's been closed for the last little while. When I do go and visit her, though, uh, 
her, her grave, I, I stand in front of it and next to her, she's in the newer section where there's all sorts of people who died recently. I'm always a little saddened because there are other graves that have been added next to her since she passed away. It's just a sign that people are passing away in that community. But I also, after I see her grave, I, I actually uh, walk around the cemetery a little bit and I look at the graves of people that died, I don't know, 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago. And many of the, the headstones are, you can't read them anymore because the wind and the rain has worn them off away, away so badly. You, you know, some moss is growing all over them. In fact, when you go into those older sections of the graveyard, you don't, it gets to the point where you don't even know anyone who's there because the names aren't, aren't known. That's occurred to me from time to time that that is really where most of us end up. Very few of us are going to end up having some massive headstone that's made out of marble and people will visit for centuries to come. In fact, there is a, none of us will probably be that way. Maybe if you end up saving the world from the pandemic or something like that, they might build you that kind of thing when, when you die. But we're a lot like the people on this list. Nobody's. We're, we're just people who are going about our business and living normal lives and thinking that there's probably nothing grand or great about what we're doing. Um, I uh, asked my youth group years ago uh, a question just as an icebreaker. I, I asked them, what's, what's your dream? <laughs> and uh, it was interesting to hear all the different students as they went around the room. One of them said, well, my dream is to become a professional athlete. And another person said, my dream is to become like the governor or president of the United States. My, my dream is to be a CEO of a major corporation. One guy, my dream is just get out of this dumb town. And then one of the leaders, he was a farmer, his name was Wes, he said, my dream is to be a farmer. Right here. Uh, listen, I, I don't have dreams of being some great, well-known person. I, I just want to do really well at the thing in front of me. Of course, all the students, when they heard that, were like, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. You don't want to go and, you know, run farming for the UN or... Something like that. He said, no, I, I just want to be a, a quiet, faithful farmer. You know, as I've gone on in life, I've realized that Wes was right. The things in front of us are often way more important than we know. The things just, just in front of us, the, the, the life, life situation that we find ourselves in because of the providence of God, we dream of doing something else great, but those things right in front of us are actually way more important than we know. And quiet faithfulness in those things will truly pay off in, in the end. Like this list of people that we don't know. That faithfulness, you never know where it's going to lead. And there are places where it's led that's remarkable. Even examples in the, in the Bible and in history that are like this. Let me give you one biblical example and then one historical example of people who've faithfully done something. And it's turned out pretty remarkable. Um, in the book of First Timothy or Second Timothy, you get this uh, little phrase from the Apostle Paul as he's speaking at the very beginning of the book about his protege Timothy, and he he says this in Second Timothy verse one or chapter one verse three. He said, "I thank God whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears." So when they left each other, uh, Timothy was crying, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that. I may be filled with joy. I am, I am reminded of your sincere faith, 
which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. I love that link. So here you have Timothy, who has become basically the co-author of a lot of uh, Paul's uh, New Testament writings. He's like his chief protege. He ends up becoming the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Like he's a really important character in the book of Acts and in the New Testament. It was him after Paul who probably carried on a bulk of what it is that Paul taught and helped visit other churches and carry them along. Hugely important guy. But he's only a Christian because his mother, Eunice, was faithful to teach him the faith. You know, every morning or whatever, they would read their prayers or they'd, they'd, uh, you know, connect with the teaching of the apostles somehow. And her mother taught her. Now, I imagine when, when, when grandmother Lois was teaching mother Eunice the faith when she was a little girl, she didn't think to herself, oh, you know what, I'm basically preparing uh, for the future of the church here, meaning that, I'm the, you know, that my, my grandson's going to end up becoming one of the most important characters in the New Testament. No, she was just going about her business in that moment. It had huge impact, huge impact, far beyond what she ever thought or could have imagined at the time. In history, here's a story. I want to read it to you. It's remarkable. It's, it's, it goes this way. World War II produced uh, many heroes. One such man was Butch O'Hare. He was a fighter pilot assigned to an aircraft carrier in the South Pacific. And one day, his entire squadron was sent on a mission. And after he was airborne, he looked at his fuel gauge and realized that someone had forgotten to top off his fuel tank. He wouldn't have enough fuel to complete his mission and get back to the ship. So his flight leader told him to return to the carrier. Reluctantly, he dropped out of formation and headed back to the fleet. But as he was returning to the mother ship, he saw something that turned his blood cold. It was a squadron of Japanese Zeros. And they were speeding their way toward the American fleet. And all the American fighters, they were gone on the mission and the fleet was all but defenseless. He couldn't reach his squadron and bring them back in time to save the fleet. So he did the only thing he could think, he could think to do. Uh, he must somehow divert them away from their target. And laying aside all thoughts of personal safety, he dove into the formation of Japanese planes. His guns were blazing as he charged in, attacking one surprised enemy plane and then another. Butch wove in and out of, now, of, of the now broken formation and fired at as many planes as possible until finally his ammunition was spent. But undaunted, he continued the assault. He dove at the Zeros, trying to at least clip off a wing or, or a tail in hopes of damaging as many of the enemy planes as possible and rendering them unfit to fly. So finally, the exasperated Japanese squadron took off in another direction. And deeply relieved, Butch O'Hare and his tattered fighter limped back to the carrier. Upon arrival, he reported in and related the events surrounding his return. The film from the camera mounted on his plane told the tale. It showed the extent of Butch's daring attempt to protect his fleet. He was recognized as a hero and given one of the nation's highest military honors. And today, O'Hare Airport in Chicago is named in tribute to the courage of this great man. Some years earlier, there was a man in Chicago called Easy Eddie. 
At that time, Al Capone virtually owned the city. Capone wasn't famous for anything heroic. His exploits were anything but praiseworthy. Uh, anything praiseworthy. He was, however, notorious for enmeshing the city of Chicago in everything from bootlegged booze and prostitution to murder. Easy Eddie was Capone's lawyer, and, and for good reason. He was really good at it. In fact, his skill at legal maneuvering kept Big Al out of jail for a long time. And to show his appreciation, Capone paid him very well. Not only was the money big, Eddie got special dividends. For instance, he and his family, family occupied a fenced-in mansion with live-in help and all the conveniences of the day. The estate was so large that it filled the entire, an entire Chicago city block. Eddie, Eddie lived the high life of the Chicago mob and gave little consideration to the atrocities that went on around him. He did have one soft spot, however. He had a son that he loved dearly. And Eddie saw to it that his young son had the best of everything, clothes, cars, a good education, nothing was withheld. Price was no object, and despite his involvement with organized crime, Eddie even tried to teach him right from wrong. He wanted him to be a better man than he was. Yet with all his wealth and influence, there were two things that Eddie couldn't give his son. Two things that Eddie sacrificed to the Capone mob that he couldn't pass on to his boy. A good name and a good example. One day, Easy Eddie reached a difficult decision. Offering his son a good name was far more important than all the riches he could lavish on him. He had to rectify all the wrong he had done. He would go, in, go to the authorities and tell them the truth about Al Capone. He would try to clean up his tarnished name and offer his son some semblance of integrity. But to do this, he had to testify against the mob. And he knew that the cost would be great. But more than anything, he wanted to be an example to his son. He wanted, he wanted to do his best to make restoration and hopefully have a good name to leave his boy. So he testified. Within the year, Easy Eddie's life ended in a blaze of gunfire on a lonely Chicago street. He had given his son the greatest gift he had to offer at the greatest price he would ever pay. So what do these two stories have to do with one another? Well, Butch O'Hare was Easy Eddie's son. I love the story because it reemphasizes the fact that the biggest impact that you and I probably will have in our lives is not in the far off distant future in a far off land where we do something great. It's actually the great things that you and I are going to do with the things right in front of us. With living with integrity, acting with honesty, passing on the faith to those who are near us with being a good doctor, or being a good lawyer, or being a good uh, builder, or being a good salesman, or, or, or being a good mother, or, or being a good teacher, or, or whatever. It's, it's in those things that the Lord is using our faithfulness to build amazing things in the days ahead. We can't see it now. And so we start wondering, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Why am I emptying the dishwasher another time and doing all the laundry for these kids? Because it's faithful. Because you never know where it might lead. You might actually end up in a genealogy.
Right. So number three. Jesus is for everyone. I want to read verse 38. It's the very end of, of the genealogy. Um, the reason I want to read it is it's, is it's a different ending point from where Matthew ends his genealogy. Luke goes further back, actually goes all the way back to Adam and God, whereas Matthew only goes back to um, Abraham. The son of Enosh, verse 38, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So you start to asking yourself, okay, so why, why does Luke make the decision to not stop where Abraham, with Abraham like, like Matthew does? I mean, the nation of Israel sees its genesis, its beginning in Abraham. God called him out. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And that, so, so it would have been enough for Luke to say, okay, he's back to Abraham. But he didn't. He goes even further back. And that's probably because Matthew is really emphasizing the fact that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. That's one of his main points in his gospel. But Luke's is a little bit broader. Luke is writing this gospel likely to a guy named Theophilus, whose name sounds very much like it's a Gentile name. It's a Greek guy. And so Luke's gospel is really focused on the fact that Jesus is not just for the Jewish people. Yes, he is the Jewish Messiah, but he is also the savior for the whole world. He's for everyone, regardless of their racial background, regardless of their socioeconomic standing, regardless of the color of their hair or their skin or whatever, he is for everyone. And so Luke, in order to make that point says, see, we can draw his line all the way back to Adam, who is the beginning of all of our genealogies. I don't care where you're from, Adam's the beginning of all of our genealogies. The Son of God, Adam, is the terminus for every last one of us. We have that in common. And because Luke points that out, he's trying to make the point that, you see, Jesus identifies with every one of us. I sometimes show pictures. I just wanted to uh, remind you of them. I'm not going to show you all of them. Sometimes I show pictures of Jesus you can get on the internet of different um, pictures of, uh, of this Jesus from different cultures. Uh, I've pointed out before that, you know, you get the European white-skinned Jesus. This seems to be the American Jesus with the mullet. This is black Jesus. This is probably what he looked like here. This guy is a Maori Jesus. I mean, you get everywhere around the world. Basically, what we end up doing is we end up kind of taking Jesus and we make him into our, our image. Now, some people respond to that and they get really frustrated and they're like, Oh, that's ridiculous. You need to understand that Jesus was a Middle Eastern man, which of course he was. So he had this skin tone, which of course he did. He's not a white guy, you know, from North Vancouver. Yeah, absolutely. So historically, that's accurate. But theologically, it's more accurate to say that Jesus actually shouldn't be limited to just his racial characteristics. His, his identity moves beyond his race or gender or whatever. His identity is human, according to Luke. And in that way, he is for you. He represents you. Not just the white people, not just the rich people, not just the poor people, not just, he, he represents you. And there's kind of, so there's kind of this kind of cool truthfulness, theological truthfulness and saying, yeah, I'm going to make him look then physically like, like me. 
because he is for me. You, you find this idea that Jesus identifies with all of us throughout several places in, in, in the New Testament. And I want to show you a couple of them because there is a really profound thought. Um, in John chapter 4, you get this story about this guy, uh, about this woman, her, and she's uh, going to the well to draw water. She's a Samaritan. And she runs across Jesus. This is how the story goes. John 4 verse 1. Uh, now Jesus was, or Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So, so he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Uh, that's actually not, not true. He did not have to go through Samaria. Did, he chose to go through Samaria. When I say it's not true, the, the meaning here is that he chose to go through Samaria because most Jews didn't have to go through Samaria. They usually uh, skipped around it. They took the long road around. It's like if you wanted to go to Oregon from uh, British Columbia and you decided to go through Idaho because nobody wants to spend any time with those Washingtonians. They're, they're dirty, they're useless, and I don't want to have anything to do with them or their city of Seattle or anything like that. Right? Dumb license plates with the Mount Rainier on them. Well, that's, that's what's the attitude. The Samaritans were kind of, they were half-breeds. They were people who had kind of uh, done the very thing that God commanded the people in Israel not to do. They had married the people of the land, the Canaanites. And so what you had is kind of half-Jewish folks who had taken the Jewish religion and tweaked it a little bit to suit them. And so, like, they were the most hated people. And so everybody avoided Samaria. They didn't want to have anything to do with Samaritans. But here's Jesus, and he's got to go back to where he is. He's got to go to Oregon. And he goes right through Washington State. He goes right through Samaria. So verse 5, he, he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, Bellingham. And near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by, by the well. And it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, this is very late time for you to draw water, which probably means that she wasn't well liked by the other ladies who came early in the morning. So she's coming out by herself in the middle of the hot day to get water, which means that she's an outsider. We learn later that she uh, is a bit of a loose living woman, maybe a woman of the night in some cases. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So he's alone with a Samaritan woman, and he starts talking to her. The Samaritan woman, verse 9, said to him, You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Oh, it's not just that Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jewish men don't, Amer don't, don't associate with any women generally when there's no other guys around. That's like, that's not, you, not, not to be done. And certainly not to somebody of her stripe. Like, if you're a prophet, you don't hang out with people like that. Like, coming into this passage, Jesus should be expected to say nothing to this woman. He shouldn't even be there. When he sees her coming, he should depart in disgust because of who she is. And yet he does none of that. Signifying, of course, that he has interest not just in the special, important folks who have power in the government or have a big stock portfolio. He's interested in the most outsider of outsiders. He wants to give them a drink of water, as we learn after this. 
He identifies with them. You know, you get into Revelation chapter 7, you get this picture in, in the heavenly realm of, of basically what it's going to be like when we all gather together before the throne of God. Um, listen to what it's described. Revelation 7 verse 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're all wearing the same thing, even though they're from every tribe and tongue and, and nation. There's no distinction between whether or not they were a plumber or a CEO of FedEx. They're all wearing white. Doesn't no distinction about whether or not they have the blackest of skin or the whitest of skin. They're all equal before the throne of God. This is the vision of the kingdom of God is to bring all of these people from all of these tribes and tongues together under one kingdom where we all have equality. Rebecca McLaughlin, she wrote this lovely book called uh, Confronting Christianity. And in it, she, she tries to push back against the secular critique these days of, oh, Christianity is just for white folks or Christianity is just appealing to a certain kind of segment. She says, my Sunday mornings involve a rich experience of diversity. My, to my left is a Chinese grad student from M MIT. To my right, a Harvard PhD student from Nigeria. Behind me sits an African-American woman with her teenage son. In front is a white manual laborer in his 60s. Our pastor is blue-eyed and white. His wife is Native American. Last night, my Bible study group comprised 14 people who had been raised on, in eight countries across four continents. Forming bonds across differences is hard, but it is as intrinsic to Christian community as singing. If you care about diversity, she says, don't dismiss Christianity. It is the most diverse, multi-ethnic, and multicultural movement in all of history. She's right. Jesus is for everyone, and that's why he commands us to take him to everywhere. Go and preach this gospel to all nations. And when the people of, uh, in the first century didn't do it, God sent a persecution so they would get out of Jerusalem and preach it to places. And guys like Thomas, according to history, end up in India. The Ethiopian eunuch shares it in Africa. Christianity is for everyone. Jesus is for everyone. So look, it doesn't matter where you're from or how much you have. It doesn't matter what color you are, what your family background is, whether it's great or it's something that you want to hide from, from everyone. It doesn't matter your income. You might be able to, to, to buy whole countries, or you might only be able to buy a Kit Kat bar. Jesus is for you, and the, and the church is a foretaste of that day where we'll all stand before God where we represent today that we are all equally made in God's image. We are all equally bound up under sin. There's not a single person among us, regardless of background or color, who hasn't sinned, and we equally have access to a Savior. So if you're looking for a solution to the rampant racism and the deep xenophobia in our world today, look no further than the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's a lot you can learn in a list of names. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm, I'm thankful for your grace. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless us. 
with knowledge of these things I've shared. I pray, Father, that you would remind us that the Bible is trustworthy. I pray that you would remind us that we, the things that you've placed us into right now are the important things, the things that you want us to be faithful in. And ultimately, Father, we pray that we would see Jesus as, as everyone and that you would heal the divisions that exist between us in this world, and especially in the church, Father, that you would help us to be a shining light and example of the multiculturalism and joy of being together with people who are different. Bring unity upon us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.